as we have been going over so many health strategies in this 12-week series, I ask the obvious question. What amongst all the different strategies that we've been discussing is the most important? Now, we've said several times in the last few months, usually when somebody asks this question, the, the correct answer is the ones we're not following, right? They're the ones that, that we're missing that opportunity to optimize the synergy that we can achieve through a comprehensive wellness program. Remember, every time we add one strategy to our list of wellness strategies, we don't just get the added benefit of that strategy. We get a exponential increase in wellness because of the synergy component. That's really very critical. But putting that concept aside for a moment, if you had to pick a strategy that had the most influence on making you a success in your wellness program, which one would that be? You know, there's, take a look on the screen for me, there, you know, there's good nutrition. Obviously, nutrition is such a powerful influence on our bodies, a regular exercise, no question, a, a tremendous impact, optimal water intake. How long can you survive without water? Some people may be able to survive up to two weeks in certain environments without water. How long can you survive without optimal water intake? Well, mainly it's going to be impacting your quality of health. How about, how about the lack of sunlight or vitamin D? Dramatically increasing our risk for disease if we avoid that wellness strategy. Avoiding smoking or alcohol or, or factors that tend to break the system down that create toxicant stress on the body. Avoid uh, uh, or having daily exposure to fresh air, proper rest and sleep, forgiveness and trust. We've, all of them are, seem to be so critical, but which one of these is so easily forgotten? Which one of these, when forgotten, so frequently destroys our opportunity to benefit from the rest? Because, you see, we've, we've been looking at this whole concept of epigenetic change. We've been looking at all the different factors in our exposome, right? Our environment, how they influence changing the expression of our genes. Which is it that sets the stage for a willingness on our part to benefit from all the others? We've We've been talking about the power of, of nutrition and nutrigenomics and how food has such a powerful influence. And, and we know that poor choices in diet have a devastating effect on our health. But what is it that leads us to make so many poor choices regarding our diet? Is it, is it just the lack of willpower that is causing us to make poor choices 
with regards to diet? And I'd like to suggest to you, no, it's not an issue primarily with willpower. It's an issue with the lack of planning effectively. The lack of awareness as to the subtle factors that really ultimately determine whether or not we're going to be making good choices today and tomorrow and next week and and be able to maintain and continue an effective wellness program. We we know that there's power in in these, these colorful nutrients, right? We've been stating all along that it's the actual colors, the pigments themselves in whole natural foods that literally change your genes. And then, of course, we have, we have described in some detail how our very thoughts can so powerfully alter our genes, can so powerfully alter our health in so many ways. But what is it, once again, that makes it so easy for us to choose hostility, to be cynical, to get irritated? What are the antecedents, those factors that really must precede making it easy for us to not be able to control our thoughts and our actions. Well, so we're back to the list. <laughs> which, which one on this list seems to fit that concept the best? I remember I was in eighth grade. I just finished reading this amazing book called The Ministry of Healing, and it actually outlined these eight natural remedies. And I began contemplating to myself, which one of these is the most important? Actually, I spent several weeks kind of contemplating which one was most important. It was maybe a little bit of an academic exercise, but I really cared. I wanted to know which one I needed to really zero in on, which one seemed to hold the key to optimizing my overall wellness program. And because of my varied schedule and, and, and uh, the early morning classes I was involved in and uh, working after school, Every once in a while, I realized when I went to bed late the night before, the next day was never quite what it could have been. What happened the next day? Instead of getting up early and going for a one-mile jog in my neighborhood, I would be tired and hit the snooze button several times. Instead of relishing uh, a healthy breakfast, I was looking for something a little sweeter, a little tastier, something to satisfy that dis-ease that I was experiencing because I just didn't feel good. I wanted to feel good, and so I started naturally seeking things that would make me feel better. Do you ever do that? Do you do anything in the morning that 
that has become a habit, but that habit is simply there because you just don't feel like you think you should. Therefore, you need this substance to improve the way you feel, right? How many times have you felt that way? I, I submit to you that the vast majority of individuals in this world wake up in the morning with a sense of dis-ease, pronounced another way, a sense of disease. They just don't feel right. And so they're looking for shortcuts to get that feeling of wholeness, that feeling of wellness. And that shortcut takes different people in different directions. Frequently in directions that cause the body to burn the candle at both ends, creating a scenario that oftentimes leads to adrenal fatigue and countless of other problems. So that's where we start this evening with the discussion on sleep and health. Because I learned that even though it's not as fun talking about sleep as it is nutrition and exercise and some of these other factors, I truly believe that sleep is at the very core. It is the most important key that can help regulate all the other factors. Because if we are not waking up refreshed and restored, which is what a good night's sleep should be doing for us, what what that means is that the body is aging quickly and is unable to heal during that evening, during that nighttime. So today we want to talk about how is it that we can use sleep as a way to maximize your healing potential and my healing potential. Actually, there's a lot more to this than we might realize. So let's just jump right into it. Have you ever felt like this? (laughs) It's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You're talking to me about sleep and the importance of sleep? I don't have time for sleep, right? I, I, I have way too much load on my shoulders. But what that mentality has done is it is actually destroying generation after generation of individuals' health. We have children today that are staying up till one and two in the morning and studying for exams to get or get papers finished. Children are destroying their health for the sake of some type of grade or performance review, even in elementary school, junior high, and certainly in high school. That's that's really unconscionable. I would much rather my children get no A's at all in school and get a good night's sleep every night than to get a 4.0 or 5.0 or whatever that might be. I'm serious about that. Because we'll be showing you research on how the lack of sleep, the lack of optimal sleep, 
is setting up our children for all the chronic diseases that we're trying to prevent or reverse and as adults, as well as literally damaging the brain. Yes, brain damage caused by emphasizing performance over adequacy of sleep. So how, how do we go about sleeping for optimal health? What does that look like? What is the real benefits of sleeping? It, one, of my, one of the favorite stories that my father used to tell me as I was growing up is the story of Charles A. Lindbergh. This is a dashing young man who, who um, took the challenge. Somebody had offered a reward of $25,000 back in 1927 for the first man or woman who could fly nonstop from New York City to Paris. He was going to be that man. He was so excited and uh, as that date approached when he was going to fly the Spirit of St. Louis from New York to Paris, he was so excited that he didn't sleep the entire night before takeoff. By the time he actually took off from New York City, he had already been without sleep for 30 hours. Oh, how he wished many times during that 33-hour flight to Paris that he had slept the night before. He is fortunate that he made it to Paris alive. Very fortunate. 63 hours without sleep to accomplish such an amazing feat. But what does that do to our genes? How does the exposome factor of sleep influence genes? Well, um, the Allen Institute for Brain Science reports that some 224 genes in mice show a negatively changed gene expression due to sleep deprivation and that thousands of genes appear to be regulated by the 24-hour circadian rhythm. Now, naturally, you might be thinking, okay, that's interesting, that's mice. Well, since that study, we have some great human research that has been done, published in the Proceedings for the National Academy of Sciences and done at the University of Surrey in the United Kingdom. They found that just one week of poor sleep, getting less than six hours of sleep, significantly altered 711 genes that dramatically affected inflammation. Does that ring a bell for anything that we've been saying over the last weeks and months? Disease is strongly tied to inflammation. And one of the things that drives the body into an inflammatory state is simply inadequate sleep. Even if you're exercising every day, even if you're eating all the right foods, even if you're doing all the other things perfectly, if you have inadequate sleep, that will drive inflammation up. It will depress immunity. It will cause stress uh, to, to become chronic. It will cause metabolic problems. 
One study showed that young adults who went to bed at 3 in the morning compared to their normal bedtime, the very next morning after a normal sleep cycle, other than the fact that they went to bed quite late, their immune system, their natural killer cells, were now depressed 50%. Now, please understand what that means. When you have a 50% depression in the very, the very cells of your immune system that are licensed to kill on contact with germs and cancer, when they see something in the body that should not be there, they instantly kill that. They destroy that. That's why they're called natural killer cells. But now instead of those, those specialized immune cells quickly destroying cancer and bacteria and viruses as they come in contact, after one night of inadequate sleep, those cells are marginated. Literally, the scientific term, they are now literally hanging out on the blood vessel walls, attached to the blood vessel walls. Why? Because they don't want to be in circulation doing their job. They're tired. They're literally taking an R&R without official leave. And now that cancer cell, those bacteria and viruses, have an opportunity to do whatever they want, dramatically impacting our health. And the, the sad note here is that there are many individuals that wake up with a depressed natural killer cell activity every morning. That alone, all by itself, could account for a significant increased risk for all kinds of diseases in that individual. The study went on to show that there was a quite a dramatic, in just one week, of getting just less than six hours. I mean, it wasn't like they were only sleeping two or three hours a night. They were getting five and a half hours, just under six hours of sleep. Cognitive thinking process was impaired. The ability for the body to repair itself was now damaged. Another study also conducted... Recently in January of 2014, uh, done at the University of Surrey and again published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, one of the most prestigious scientific organizations in the world. They found that just a three-day sleep disruption, in this case, what they did is they changed the rhythm of sleep from nighttime to the afternoon. They had them sleep from noon until, until about 6.30 p.m. Lest you think that simply getting enough sleep is okay, that the timing of your sleep isn't that critical as long as you get a total amount of sleep. 
If you think that that's okay, this study should dissuade you because what they found is that rather than just having over 700 genes altered, when they, when they disrupted the time of sleep in a significant way, the number of genes that were altered, uh, the, num- the number of genes that were actually in rhythm with the, the sleep cycle of the body dropped from 1,400 all the way to 200 and some. So over 1,170 genes were significantly altered in a negative way. Powerful, powerful study. The researchers went on to suggest that that sleep disruption ultimately impacts about one-third of the entire human genome. We have about 20,000 genes in our body, different genes. This is suggesting that nearly 7,000 of those genes are dramatically altered simply because of not sleeping optimally. Wow. This is powerful information. See, there's tremendous benefits of sleep. We know that sleep helps neural functioning. We all intuitively know that. We all know that if we get adequate sleep, we wake up with a different frame of reference. We yeah, we can remember things better. We're clear. We're not in that fuzzy head, right? Uh, that that, that uh, foggy brain syndrome that I so oftentimes hear about is very much related to optimal sleep. So sleep gives neurons a chance to recuperate, improves the immune system, prevents disease. And so a, a, a wonderful, catchy statement says, if you want to fly with the eagles... You better not hoot with the owls. <laughs> okay. um, another good study done by Dr. Evan Carter. She stated that children need about 10 hours of sleep. And this is where our society is really missing out on an opportunity to dramatically impact the health of our children. And in those who are aged 12 to 21 require about nine hours. Now, that's where our society really fails our young people, really fails, because that's when performance is the most critical, performance as to what college you get into and what job you get after college. How many of our, of our children of our teenagers, of our youth, are getting adequate sleep. Sleep helps children and youth think well. Sufficient sleep for children aids proper brain development, good memory, strengthens the immune system, and contributes to good social behavior. There was recently a psychologist called Tanya Byron, She said, parents are ruining their children's lives by failing to teach them to sleep. Wow. (laughs) That's kind of being pointed. Parents are ruining their children's lives by failing to teach them to sleep. She has her own talk show and TV show uh, in the United Kingdom, and 
And she stresses this because, see, it's easy for us to look at a woman who's smoking or drinking during pregnancy and think, oh, that is horrible. That's unconscionable. And it is. But yet, how many of us think twice about what's happening to our children when we're not encouraging optimal behaviors relative to sleep habits? A study done in the International Journal of Obesity, published in October 2010, showed that shorter sleep duration in in young children, usually that would be less than seven or eight hours of sleep a night, increases obesity by threefold, that's 300%, in four to eight-year-old boys, and by fivefold, it's 500%, in 9- to 13-year-old boys and girls. It apparently took a little time for it to catch up with the girls. But by ages 9 to 13, if they had not been sleeping optimally, they were five times more likely to be obese. Isn't that amazing? That just that one factor had such a huge impact. Now, Again, how does this work? How could it be that just not sleeping has such a powerful influence on something that we just think is an eating problem or a lack of exercise problem? Again, it's important for us to ask the question, what are the factors that determine whether or not somebody, the ages of 4 to 13, are going to choose a cookie or to choose to eat something healthy. Have you ever heard the statement, uh, nothing good happens after midnight? If you were in the military, you probably heard that by one of your superiors as you were being released for weekend leave. Nothing good happens after midnight. Get to bed before midnight. If you played uh, college athletics of any kind, chances are your coach told you the same thing. Nothing good happens after midnight. Get to bed before midnight. But see, that goes way past the notion of just putting yourself in bad situations where you're more likely to get into trouble and to disrupt your future life in a significant way. This is also true when it comes to academic performance. If you choose to burn the midnight oil in order to learn more, gain more knowledge so that you can do well on your tests, so you can finish that report, you're not putting into effect what we've been learning in science. And that is, if you have a lot to do, if you feel overwhelmed because of all the the projects, the things that you have to finish, the very best strategy is to make sure that you're working on all cylinders. And that requires you to go to bed early. 
I know of many individuals who had significant classwork, significant number of hard classes that were ta- they were taking, and they realized that if they just went to bed at nine and got up at three, even though they were only getting six hours of sleep, they were dramatically enhancing their quality of sleep, the restorative potential of sleep, the brain uh, enhancing qualities of sleep when they went to bed earlier versus going to bed at midnight and getting up at six. The same amount of sleep in this case does not equate with the same amount of improvement academically. Getting to bed at a reasonable time has been shown in other studies to be a very strong predictor of GPA in college. Interesting. An interesting study expanding on this is basically was suggesting that this biological clock that we all have, it could be the actual key to better health and a longer better health. And it says, if, if you aren't getting a good, consistent, and regular night's sleep, a new study suggests it could reduce your ability to handle oxidative stress. In other words, now your body is experiencing damage because of this oxidation. And by the way, oxidation is one of the primary toxins that leads to heart disease, that promotes cancer that causes strokes, that causes autoimmune problems and inflammation. And so it's showing us that a good night's sleep may be one of the most important antioxidants available to us, preventing the oxidation from occurring in the first place. It's it, uh, reducing the ability to handle oxidative stress, cause impact, uh, impacts to your health, increased motor and neurological deterioration, speed aging, and ultimately cut short your life. Now, the researcher, Dr. Krishnan at Oregon State University, publishing his work in Aging Magazine or Journal in 2010, he said this, and I quote, this study suggests that young individuals may be able to handle certain stresses. They appear to be doing okay. They, they appear to get, be getting by. But the same insults at an older age cause genetic damage and appear to lead to health problems and earlier death. And it's linked to the biological clocks. We need to be true to our biological clock. A a big study of 70,000 women found that those who slept five hours a night had a 40% higher rate of heart attacks than those who slept eight hours. Huge study, Harvard University. The International Agency for Research on Cancer announced in 2009 that their investigations place night working just one category below known carcinogens, such as asbestos as a cause of cancer. We put so much emphasis on the toxins in our environment, as we should, but it's really critical to understand 
that one of the greatest and most important strategies for removing toxins from the brain is appropriate sleep. Researchers uh, find that lack of sleep contributes significantly to obesity. Take a look. Sleep restriction leads to hepatic and peripheral insulin resistance. That's just fancy talk for when you don't sleep optimally, your liver becomes very resistant to insulin. And so it starts actually dumping sugar into the bloodstream. And that is one reason that many people with prediabetes or diabetes have very high blood sugars first thing in the morning, many times even higher than they do after they eat. Because the liver has become resistant to insulin, and so now the pancreas has to produce a tremendous amount of insulin in order to compensate for that, to shut down the release of extra sugar from the liver, and to try to force the liver to actually reabsorb some of that sugar. But it doesn't happen just in the liver. It also happens in all the muscles of the legs and the body. When the muscles become resistant to insulin, blood sugars shoot up. And as blood sugars shoot up, the pancreas has no choice but to produce a tremendous amount of extra insulin, becoming one of the main factors that drives obesity, hormonal regulations of all kinds. Think of, think of the, all the different hormones in our body as a symphony. For that symphony to sound wonderful, everybody has to play their part and be in sync. What would happen if, if, the, if the bass drum started just going off? That's kind of like insulin. Insulin is a dominant hormone in the body. It would ruin the entire experience of the symphony. And that's what happens, that the insulin levels shoot up, and that causes fluctuations in the blood sugars up and down. It's a major, in fact, the primary factor in cardiovascular disease, the whole concept of insulin resistance. Number one reason why people develop heart disease and strokes. A major reason why people get the common cancers, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and others. Another study out of Harvard Sarah Mark, who was working on her doctorate at Harvard in just uh, early in 2014, presented a paper in, in San Diego with the American Association of Cancer Researchers. She showed that men who had higher levels of melatonin had a 75% lower risk of developing advanced prostate cancer. We're not really concerned about about mild prostate cancer. It kills no one. But advanced prostate cancer, we're concerned about. Can you imagine a simple strategy like having an optimal amount of melatonin in your bloodstream that would lower the risk of advanced prostate cancer in men by 75%? By the way, that's the same. People, men with high melatonin levels have better control of insulin. How do you get more melatonin? How, how does the body produce more melatonin? It's by being in sync 
with your body's circadian rhythm, the body's biological clock. The first thing that determines whether or not your body is able, your pineal gland is able to release a a high level of melatonin at night when it's dark, is if you've spent some time in the light. See, your body can't optimize that restorative sleep during the dark part of the night. It can't produce that melatonin adequately unless you've spent some time in the light that previous day. The best time to get outside in the bright light outdoors is early in the morning as that sun is just coming up. The goal is to spend a half an hour in bright light every day, preferably in the morning. Ideally, to spend about an hour altogether outside in bright light. Because that bright light, those photons literally go right through the eye into the pineal gland and stimulate the storage of melatonin. So at nighttime, when, when the lights are out and when the room is dark, and only when the room is dark, is the pineal gland now able to release an optimal level of melatonin. Going to bed by 10 o'clock at night has the opportunity gives you the potential to make 50% melatonin in that given night. How can that be? Because the ability to release melatonin is dependent on the timing and your circadian rhythm. And timing becomes everything when it, when it relates to health. When you sleep, when you wake up, when you eat, all those factors are determined by timing. Timing is what either optimizes or minimizes the potential benefit of that activity. So sleep restriction leads to problems with the liver and the muscles, the insulin resistance that translates into high insulin levels and ultimately into low blood sugars as the as the insulin overcompensates to cause the sugars to get too low, and now the adrenals have to produce more cortisol to try to bring sugars back up, and we go through this roller coaster of high and low insulin, high and low cortisol, and now we have a completely dysregulated system. A study published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism in uh, 2010 showed that individuals who are getting five to six hours a night of sleep versus those who get the average optimal level in our population of seven to eight hours of sleep had a 69% increased risk of obesity. Just that factor alone, controlling for other factors. So, Some of you don't get too excited when we talk about heart disease or cancer, <laughs> uh, about diabetes. <clears throat> uh, you know that if you, if you go to bed late one night, the next morning you're more diabetic. You're more likely to be diabetic. You're more insulin resistant. Your blood sugars are much more likely to be high just because of that one 
time that you went to bed late. But again, that doesn't impress some people. But having an impact on how you look on cosmetics can really be impressive to some. Okay? I, I think it should be important to all of us, right? All of us want to, want to put our best foot forward. We want to look as good as possible. And so just sleep loss has a huge influence on appearance. And studies are showing that a young man's handsomeness is affected by sleep deprivation. There was another study done recently showing it was done on 60 women that were between the ages of 30 and 59. And they closely monitored them for the ability of their skin to heal. They were looking for signs of premature aging to skin. And and they were also doing tests on them where they would actually expose them to sunlight or, or ultraviolet light, UVA, UVB, and look at how long it took for the DNA damage caused by that simulated sunlight, how long it took for that to be repaired. See, the body has internal mechanisms by which it can heal itself. The most important thing about wellness is to learn and understand how do we optimize the body's self-healing system. We are all exposed every day to things that cause toxicity. Just, just the being alive means that we're releasing toxins into our system every second of every day. How does the body remove that and repair That's why all these other factors are so critical, nutrition and exercise and so forth, the detoxification strategies we discussed previously. But sleep is a critical one. Sleep is now starting to be understood as one of the most powerful detoxification strategies. How about insomnia? We have so much stress in our world. It doesn't have to be acute stress, as you see on the screen. It doesn't have to be something that is visibly uh, affecting our lives. It can be just that chronic, repetitive stress that just prevents us from functioning optimally. You see, when we're under stress, that induces the adrenal glands to release cortisol. We want to have the right level of cortisol. We don't want it to be low. We don't want it to be high. But when when the body's under chronic stress, the adrenal glands are perpetually producing too much cortisol, but that can only last so long. The body can't just be running high in cortisol all the time. It has to come down. Many many, uh, individuals experience, especially in middle age, I just realized that I'm middle-aged. <laughs> okay. usually, uh, usually after 45 years old or 50 in particular, I see this a lot in my practice, that the individual who's been very active under chronic stress like most of us are, producing lots of cortisol, pretty soon your body can't produce that much cortisol anymore. 
And during the day, the cortisol repetitively takes timeouts. Blood sugars, therefore, drop, and that's where we start experiencing cravings. Cravings to eat things we normally would realize aren't good for us. Um, An unwillingness to do other things that we know are good for us, like exercise. We just stop making really good decisions. And, and uh, so during the day, the cortisol waxes and wanes, it goes up a little bit, then drops off, and frequently people experience the fatigue mid to late morning and mid to late afternoon. But in a certain subsection of the population, the population that is tending to this form of adrenal fatigue, around seven or eight, the energy starts coming back, start feeling pretty good. And then around 9 o'clock, you're feeling really good. And the last thing on their mind is starting to get ready for bed. Starting to get ready for that kind of magical 10 o'clock hour when the body, if positioned properly, can start producing lots of melatonin and, and start repairing the body and the brain for tomorrow. But by 9.30, 10 o'clock, even 11 o'clock, we feel great. So I have felt bad all day long. I just want to feel good a little bit longer. I get it. I understand that. The problem is, is that you're sacrificing tomorrow to feel good right now. It's a challenge because it's actually hard to go to sleep at that time because now the stress hormones are higher. Everything's activated. Everything's stimulated. And so we have to actually go back and reestablish all the other strategies in such a way that we have the potential to be able to calm the mind down and go to sleep at a reasonable early time. What's one of the first strategies that we should consider if we're struggling with that overactive mind at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and we try, if we tried to go to sleep at 10 or 10.30, it's just all these thoughts coming through the brain. Can't shut it down. What's one of the first things we should make sure that we're doing to prevent that or to minimize that from happening? First of all, we've already mentioned it, getting outside early in the morning. The next day, if you're not sleeping well, the tendency is to not to get up at a, at a good hour, but to try to sleep in. And that's the first mistake that people who have chronic insomnia make. You want to actually get up at a reasonable time so that you can get outside and get that 30 minutes of bright light therapy. That's critical. It's critical to break the, the dysrhythmia that you're caught in, this dysregulation that you're caught in. You have to break that cycle first thing in the morning, the bright light. And then preferably take advantage of some exercise along with that bright light. Walking. doesn't have to be vigorous. Walking is fine. Getting some exercise 
and getting some exercise throughout the day that actually induces a sweat will not only help your body detoxify, but it will also help calm your body, which then helps calm the mind. See, an overactive mind frequently is associated with an understressed body. I'm talking about physical exercise now. If you have tension in your muscles, the best thing you can do to calm that tension is to actually exercise that muscle. So another strategy that I frequently recommend to individuals who struggle with this is called progressive muscle relaxation. You can, if you're struggling, falling asleep at night and you're feeling tense, you're feeling anxious, the mind is going, you know, uh, 60 miles an hour and you just can't, can't control those thoughts, I suggest that you just start with your fists and just for six seconds, just make them as tight as you can, as hard as you can, as hard as you can. And take a deep breath, release the fist. And as you release that deep breath, you concentrate on the feeling that you're having as that stress leaves your fingertips. You can just feel that relaxation, that release of tension in that muscle. And then you just progressively move up muscle group after muscle group, the forearm, then six seconds with the bicep, then shoulders, then neck, then face. Okay, then, then the, the shoulder muscles, the back muscles, the chest muscles, work all the way down the body and either begin or end with crunching your toes. Actually, I feel a lot better already just after doing that little bit of progressive muscle relaxation. It, it's, it's actually very therapeutic, and anybody can do that no matter where you are. You could be on an airplane, sitting sitting at the gate at the airport, even while driving you can do this. Because so many of us, because we have allowed ourselves to get out of sync, not exercising properly, not eating properly, not sleeping properly, we get that tension. So that's one way to kind of restore ourselves. Another key strategy is the importance of not eating late. Now, that can be tough. You see, because if, if we're either feeling bad or depressed or anxious or happy and, and, and excited how good we feel, what's one of the first things that comes to mind? Hey, you know, how can we make this better? Let's eat something, <laughs> right? It's, it's just part of human nature, no matter if things are really bad or really good, we want to eat something. And that's where we need to take advantage of the latest research that shows that the best way to relax the body, for most of us, is to try to have about four hours between that dinner meal and a reasonable bedtime. Okay, so that's especially important for those of us who are not able to fall asleep easily around 10 o'clock, 10.30, whenever that might be. Now, there are some exceptions to that 
at least for a while. And that is those individuals that have significant adrenal fatigue, where the blood sugars tend to drop significantly during the night, that can be one of the main causes of wakefulness at night. Some people are able to fall asleep okay at 10 o'clock, 10.30, without too much time being involved in that process, but about 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning, they're wide awake. And they haven't had enough sleep. They haven't had enough of that restorative sleep that the research clearly shows is necessary for detoxifying the body and regenerating and rejuvenating the body. One of the more common reasons for that abrupt wake-up call early in the morning is because the blood sugars have dipped too low. And when the blood sugars get to a certain point, alarms will go off in the brain saying, we're starting to shut down because of low blood sugar. And those alarms tell the adrenal glands to release cortisol, the stress hormone, which then tell the liver to release sugar stores and brings your blood sugar back up. But by this time, you have stress hormones surging through your blood, which are the hormones that are supposed to be gradually released about two hours, beginning about two hours before you actually wake up. So it should be like a dimmer switch. The cortisol levels are gradually released. So by the t- over a two-hour period, so by the time 6 o'clock arrives or whatever your, your morning wake-up call is, you actually just wake up and ideally you feel good, you feel refreshed. You don't feel startled out of a deep sleep. So adrenal fatigue has a huge association to inadequate and poor quality sleep. So we need to correct that. It's also true that sleep deprivation is actually more of a problem around the world than intoxication with alcohol. This is true uh, in, in, in many simulated studies. In fact, one study done on, on mothers, young uh, mothers, what mothers with young children. And they took a, a group of mothers who had young children who were, were getting very poor quality sleep because of, of their duties, and they put them in uh, car driving simulator testing. And they found that the number of corrections required by these tired mamas, corrections due to deviations uh, on the road while they were driving, was 30% more than mothers who were intoxicated and were given the same test. That's scary. It's a significant problem. Fatigue impairs judgment and, and reaction time just like exposure to alcohol does. In fact, studies uh, done at Oklahoma and, and also in California show that 50% of all fatal accidents on freeways are due to sleep problems, people falling asleep. 
a critical, critical factor. So let's go back to this biological clock in the brain. Have you, have you ever seen somebody who is just really burned out, whether it's at work or in your family? They're just, uh, they're just burned out. They just have had it. They just can't handle life as they used to be able to handle it. Well, new studies are showing that this is directly related to how sleep is able to restore the brain back to optimal function. A doctor at Macon uh, Nettergaard from the University of Rochester recently in, in October of 2013 published a study in the Journal of Science that really caught my attention. And I'm going to quote here, it says, the byproducts of daytime brain function must be detoxified at night. This is actually a paraphrase. Had to make it fit. <laughs> but did you get this? See, this is a whole new concept. Okay? The byproducts of daytime brain function must be detoxified at night. Did you ever think that your brain is actually generating toxins all day long because of, of what that brain is doing? It's normal function throughout the day leaves behind a multitude of toxins. We have to deal with those toxins somehow. They can't stay in the brain because they're going to be neurotoxic. We know from, from metabolic research that the brain is actually the most metabolically active organ in the body. The vast majority of the carbohydrates that you consume in a given day at least for individuals that are, that are normally active or generally sedentary, the vast majority of that carbohydrate intake is going to be used by the brain. See, we have a hard time visualizing that because the brain is just this, you know, gray matter and white matter. They're just sitting there. It's not really doing anything, is it? No, it has, it's, it's, it's working tremendously hard. And that means that there's going to be a natural endogenous production of toxins. Previously, we talked about two forms of toxins that we get exposed to, the exogenous toxins, those toxins that are, that are uh, man-made or that are, that are thrown into the environment because of various processes, burning of coal, etc., that generates toxins that we get exposed to. But the body is generating toxins every second. So we need to address that. So, so the glymphatic system, did, did you ever know that the body had a glymphatic system? That's not a typo. <laughs> we know about the lymphatic system in the body, but the brain has its own detoxifying system where it literally washes and flushes itself out every night. Those of us who, who uh, have done any painting or any type of work with, on cars around the house know that you got to flush out the toxins when you're done, right? You got to flush it out, washing your hands, etc., washing out the paintbrush. You got to flush it out. Well, the brain does the same thing at night. The, the glymphatic system pumps cerebral spinal fluid through the brain at night, flushing toxins into the circulation and thus 
to the liver where the liver can detoxify further. Wow. The, the researchers went on to discuss that, you see, the brain is very similar to having a party at your house. If you have a whole bunch of people at your house enjoying a wonderful meal and, and social activity, that's not the time that you can clean your house, right? You clean it before, you clean it afterwards, but you can't clean it while everybody is there. Or at least that would be very rude, right? <laughs> if, you, if you focused on cleaning the house when you have company. So the brain can't do both things at once. It can't clean itself, detoxify itself. It has, it's such a tremendous task that at nighttime, as we're going into that deep sleep, that glymphatic system flushes out the brain with the cerebral spinal fluid. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Okay, our, our bodies and our brains are fearfully and wonderfully made. But we have to give it time to heal every night. And if we don't do it properly, the brain now is, is exposed to toxins that could be one of the reasons that Alzheimer's in fact, it's being speculated that very likely one of the reasons that Alzheimer's is exponentially increasing in our society is because we're not giving the brain adequate time to detoxify at night. A thorough rinsing of your brain is required every night. So what about resetting the biologic clock. We've already shared multiple strategies of how we can do that. And so I want to quickly share with you my ex personal experience dealing with jet lag. I mentioned this briefly as we talked about the power of sunlight in optimizing health and immunity. But when I was, uh, I believe, 28 years old, I had the opportunity to do uh, my final internship at a hospital in Singapore. This was a hospital that was actually named after my great uncle, Gus Youngberg. He was the first missionary to Borneo. And, uh, and so when I was given that opportunity, I thought, wow, what a wonderful opportunity to go to Singapore and spend an entire summer working for the Youngberg Memorial Hospital, 1988. I got on a flight, Korean Airlines in, in Los Angeles, Flew to Seoul, Korea, and then to Singapore. 13-hour time difference. Got there late one night, about midnight, their time. I have no idea what time it was here at the moment. Um, that, that evening, or that, late that night, the president of the hospital had picked me up, and he says, Wes, great news. Tomorrow morning, we're having a special 5K at, at our hospital. And, and since you're doing an internship in lifestyle medicine, we'd love to, to, um, to uh, invite you to this and to uh, you know, introduce you to our community. So my heart kind of sank a little bit because I knew that was going to be an early morning wake-up call. So realizing, though, that I had to put my best foot forward here, first day at, on the job, so to speak, I said, absolutely, just make sure you wake me up. So 5.30 the next morning, 
I felt like I'd only been asleep half an hour. Uh, the president of the hospital and, and uh, Dr. Clarence Ng, who is a preventive medicine specialist and ophthalmologist, came to get me, changed quickly, went, went to the 5K, and I tell you, the humidity was overwhelming. As I was running that 5K, I thought my lungs were going to burst. The sun was hot. But I tried to make it as easy, as, to look as easy as I could. The, the real value of running that 5K that early that morning was that my circadian rhythm, my jet lag, was completely readjusted. Getting out in early morning light, doing some type of exercise, preferably sweaty exercise, it reset my clock so I had no jet lag. I was completely in sync with the circadian rhythm of that area from then on out. So that's a little tip for those of you that like to travel and visit other areas. So we've been giving you now a series of strategies of how you can optimize restful sleep. Remember that we were born for joy, but we're not going to experience joy if we don't have that restorative sleep. Remember that nothing tends to promote health of body and soul than does the spirit of gratitude and praise. But you see, we're not going to be able to appreciate that spirit of gratitude and praise unless our brains have been cleared of those toxins the night before, unless we've had that restorative sleep. And finally, I challenge each of you to enjoy each day in a way that gives you even more joy tomorrow, recognizing that that can only happen optimally if you are choosing to optimize your sleep in the way that we've been talking about. So ultimately, you can make a difference. Remember, you are the chairman and the chairwoman of your board of health. And only you can make that difference. Thank you. Thank you. The first question this evening is, are there any advantages in taking a nap for adults? (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, the, the key here is to recognize the length of the nap. You know, there's, there's many great examples. Thomas Edison is, is one great example of the power nap. He'd do little 10, 15-minute naps, and he'd be restored, and he'd go at his, his hard work again. Now, this is potentially especially important in individuals that are, that are really concentrating aggressively. Case in point, Thomas Edison. He was putting a tremendous amount of mental energy into his tasks all day long. And, and that was what? That was generating a lot of waste products that had to be cleared out. And so potentially in his case, that little 10-minute uh, power nap helped restore him. And that's where we need to understand our individuality, how we work best. But also on the flip side of this, want to draw your attention to that study that changed the circadian rhythm where instead of sleeping from, you know, from 10 to 6, 
they were now sleeping from noon to 6.30. And how that disrupted nearly an entire third of the human genome. And so when we shift the time of sleep, and when we get too much sleep at a time that the body isn't really designed to sleep, that can really set us up for serious problems. So I think a prudent use of a nap, very appropriate, but we need to consider the timing of that. We certainly wouldn't want to take a nap at a point that would decrease the ability for us to get a good night's rest. So if your napping is interfering with your ability to fall asleep at a reasonable time, then I would suggest don't nap, okay? Wait until it's time to go to bed and then sleep. Get into that rhythm, okay? The other thing, one of the most common reasons that we feel like we need a nap I'm going to ask you, when's the time where we're most likely to feel like we need a nap? Yeah, right after we have eaten. Okay, and so, but, but what, what should the frontal lobe be telling us what is actually best for us right after we've eaten? Yeah, going for a light walk is the very best thing because the reason we're tired, is it because the body really needs a rest? Or is it because the brain and the rest of the body isn't getting nutrients because all the nutrients are bogged down in the gut? Okay, and how do we get those nutrients recirculating to the brain and elsewhere? Well, we do that through light activity. Light activity enhances digestion and moves the digestion along. So now our brain and our muscles are getting nutrients and energy. So once we get that exercise at 5, 10, 15 minutes of light activity immediately after the meal, then if we really still feel like we need a nap, eh, go ahead and take a short nap. Most people would probably feel okay after that. They feel re-energized and go about their work. Okay. Um, what do you do with, with um, sleep disruptions? And I'm thinking here... Um, Dreams sometimes. seems like your mind is working all night, too. Um, how, how do you deal with what that? What about uh, sleep disruptions? The, the first thing that we need to consider when we, if we're struggling with waking up at night or, as mentioned, having vivid dreams, frequently, not all the time, but frequently a vivid dream or even a nightmare is brought on because of a thermic effect, the body temperature goes up, and that stimulates vivid dreams or nightmares. Well, what is most likely to cause that thermic effect at night? A later evening meal. There's jokes out there that talk about, oh, yeah, I had some pizza late last night. Woo! I had some really wild dreams because of that, right? So a late night meal increases the risk of, of a warmer body temperature at that time during the night, which can lead to that type of sleep disturbance. Uh, other considerations would be make sure, again, make sure that we are avoiding meals, generally speaking, for at least three to four hours before bedtime. Uh, avoid drinking a lot of water uh, later in the evening, right? Because uh, that, that can tend to to make you get up to urinate 
once, twice, or even three times during the night. Obviously, that's going to be a significant sleep disruption. Uh, other factors have to do with the temperature of the room that you're sleeping in. It, it shouldn't be warm. It needs to be cool, but not cold. A cool room will optimize your ability to sleep soundly during the night. Another factor is ha- absolutely no light in the room, which may in certain neighborhoods require blackout screens where there's no light emitted at all through the screen or shades. And that, that complete darkness uh, really tones down the body's uh, uh, wakefulness system and calms the body down enough so you, you can sleep well. Some studies have shown that just having a little light, even just a little night light in your, um, in your room can decrease melatonin production up to 50%. And, and there has been speculations that that's one reason that there has been an association, not proven yet, but an association between having nightlights in a child's room and leukemia. Again, the theory is that if if there's a sensitivity, that that nightlight would limit melatonin production at night, which is critical in the body's ability to fight cancer and and optimize the healing process. If there's anyone in the audience who would like to ask a question, you're welcome to come and share your question here with Dr. West Youngberg. One more question. Um, Besides sleep, are there any other ways of resting? Of resting? Yes. (laughs) Okay, absolutely. uh, First of all, we need to recognize that the body needs vacations, right? And so the, the frequently we'll talk about that summer vacation that, that um, hopefully we all take advantage of in some way, but something to look forward to, a time where we just set that apart for the family to do something that we haven't done all year, a, a vacation set apart. And this, so we, we ha- frequently have these quarterly vacations, right? You got summer vacation, you got winter break, we got spring break. For those of us with kids in, in school or high school or college, you know, that, that's just part of our life cycle. We got all these different quarterly vacations, Thanksgiving break and so forth. Wonderful times to spend with significant others, with family, etc. Uh, and so there's all these types of cycles. Today we've been talking about the circadian rhythm, which is the 24-hour cycle and how critical it is to pay attention to it and to figure out what's the best way to accomplish that. Okay, we have all kinds of cycles in nature. Okay, and one of, one of my favorite cycles is the weekly cycle. I don't know what I'd do without, without that weekly cycle, that opportunity to rest on the weekend to have that regeneration, to spend time with family, spend time with friends, spend time with God. Those are real critical times. We have a question from someone in our audience. What about when we have May gray or June gloom? Are we still 
benefited by getting outside even though there isn't sunlight? Well, that's a great question. Uh, so if it's, I remember, Betsy, when I first moved here in 2008 from Guam to Southern California, it was January, and it was the, like the worst January, February ever. You know, it was just like really gloomy, overcast, rainy, uh, fairly unusual for Southern California. But coming from Guam, that was a huge change. We were wondering if we'd made a mistake there for a while. Uh, uh, thankfully, we had a nice fireplace and, and a hot tub to, to make up for some of that. But the, the key is bright light. So if it is overcast, even though it's, it's still, it's not bright and sunny out, but just being outside in the daytime, the sun can be up, there could be cloud cover, but we're actually still getting some bright light. So still want to be out, preferably, getting some of that, although dimmed, still bright light technically. But in addition to that, especially in areas of the world where it's really gloomy, um, it's many, many months out of the year, it's really critical to get a light box, a bright light box that has 10,000 lux light shining, and we need to have exposure to that roughly about 20 to 30 minutes on a daily basis, preferably, but at least three times a week. Many places around the world that have very little light certain times of the year they actually make those bright light boxes available for the community and so that people can get it. Otherwise, they will get seasonal affective disorder. They will, be, they will get this depression, uh, and, and they, they will have significant cravings and feel like eating all the time. Just, you know, that's why when we go to restaurants, it's hard to read the menu. You know, it's because it's always dim light. Well, you think they're doing that because they're trying to save on electricity? Now they're doing that because they want you to spend more money on ordering more food. That's precisely the, the strategy because dim light basically removes inhibition. And it creates a craving environment where we're more likely to eat things that otherwise we might not eat, okay, and amounts as well. So, so taking advantage is part of our plan to use bright light daily, even if it requires a, a light box, can dramatically decrease our risk of unnecessary weight gain, can decrease our risk of immune dysfunction, can, can improve our cognitive ability, can improve the body's, the brain's ability to detoxify the next night, so on and so forth. So that's a really a, a critical concept. I have a bright light at home. Fortunately, I haven't had to use it for a while, <laughs> but if it, if it starts getting gloomy out there, the goal is to get it out and spend some time every morning either reading or while you're eating breakfast, just have it exposed to, to you know, within 18 inches of your, of your eyes. I believe these are all our questions for tonight. We want to thank those who are watching online and those who came out tonight, and we want to thank Dr. West Youngberg again for tonight's presentation. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.